Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed Mary Beard on classical women for a very special 100th episode. And today we look at the life and work of the Mexican surrealist Remedios Varo with scholar and curator Terra Arc. But before we get to this, I'm so excited to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House. Now, many of you are familiar with their exciting live and online auctions, but did you know that there are other ways of buying at Christie's? With Christie's private sales, you don't have to wait for the next auction to get the work that you love. Private sales is a bespoke and discreet service where Christie's specialists are at your disposal throughout your collecting journey, offering year-round opportunities to acquire extraordinary art and objects. With over 193 works currently available for private at sale from old master paintings to impressionist and modern art chinese ceramics to european sculpture furniture jewelry manuscripts photographs and many more works that are available for immediate purchase include examples by paula rago which were included in christie's recent selling exhibition in london macabre the portuguese british visual artist has played a key role in redefining figurative art in the uk and internationally since the 1950s and was known particularly for her paintings and prints based on storybooks. Her style is coloured by folk themes from her native Portugal, reflecting her extraordinary imaginative power and unwavering stance on feminism through the way she portrayed women in her work. For more information on these works and how to buy through Christie's private sales, visit christies.com and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the art historian and leading curator of surrealist and feminist art in Mexico and beyond, Terra Arc. A professor in art history based in Mexico City, Terra Arc has been the chief curator of the Museum of Modern Art in Mexico and has curated exhibitions on women surrealists around the world. In 2012, she curated In Wonderland, The Adventures of Women Surrealists at LACMA, in addition to exhibitions at the National Museum of Fine Arts in Quebec and here in the UK, where she was the co-curator of the 2010 dazzling exhibition Surreal Friends, Leonora Carrington, Remedios Varro and Katty Horner at Pallant House Gallery. Her current exhibitions, a retrospective of Leonora Carrington, is currently on view at the Arkin Museum in Copenhagen before travelling to Madrid. 
With more curatorial projects in the pipeline, very excitingly, Terra is the co-curator of the upcoming retrospective at the Chicago Art Institute for summer 2023 on the artists we are very excitingly talking about today. The surrealist hailed for her dazzling paintings, infused with Renaissance and meticulous rendering, Remedios Faro. Terra Arc, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you, Cathy. I'm very well, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, thank you so much. So I've been wanting to discuss Remedius Varo for quite some time now. Whenever I see her paintings, I feel transfixed by their mystical and metaphysical atmosphere. These meticulously rendered, almost Renaissance-like works of these women who seem to be trapped in towers on a quest to reach a higher state of consciousness. They are at once haunting, mesmeric, glowing, magical. So I want to start by asking you, how do you feel when you are confronted by the work of Remedius Varo? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly like you have described, that is the reason why I fell in love with her work and started really studying her. And I was always intrigued about these paintings that seemed like from another time, full of mystery and the detail. And I'm very happy to tell you that now for the upcoming exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago, where we are studying in depth the interrelationship between science, her materiality, her technique, and the mysterious quality, and this fiction in her paintings. Actually, the title of the exhibition is Remedios Varios Science Fictions. And we're doing in-depth studies to her technique to really let people know more about how she was creating these amazing paintings, because there's a whole fantastic project that involves magic on it, as well as a very scientific method. Yeah, I mean, she totally blurs that boundary between these kind of surrealist science fiction. I think that's such a fantastic title for her work as well. I mean, what draws you to her work? Well, the uh, the mystery, among with the technique, how was it done? It's so different than any other painting you've ever seen, how she mixes so many techniques at the same time that look mesmerizing, but also because she was a very complex individual. She was uh, an intellectual. She was also curious and a perpetual seeker. So in many of the paintings, they're sort of uh, autobiographical there are symbolic self-portraits when we see this lonely figure in a search for truth, for understanding the universe. And when we see a group of people, a lot of her characters seem to be androgynous. So she was really involved also in studying a lot of esoteric teachings. But at the same time, she was studying science and physics and reading Gothic novels and fantastic literature she was interested in everything. It's so interesting because her paintings almost feel cinematic. They're so atmospheric. Absolutely. They just transport you to another time, but we don't really know which time it is because sometimes you get this medieval feeling in the architecture and sometimes it's a Renaissance feeling, but then some of her machines are ultra-modern and completely invented and it makes me think of uh, da vinci and inventing all these flying machines and of course he was a source of inspiration to her as well as the uh, novels of jules verne one of her favorite science fiction writers amazing her works just 
it's as though stories kind of evaporate into them or something. They completely entice you. Yes, you have the feeling that you are in the middle of an alchemical transformation when you look at them. Totally, totally. Is there one work in particular that affects you so much? Wow. <laughs> well, there's, uh, there's so many, but one of my favorites, it's Harmony. It was at the Venice Biennale that just ended. And I love that painting because it has a subtitle. The subtitle is Symbolic Self-Portrait. And you see this character in a studio that at the same time looks like an alchemical lab, but it's also like an ancient library. It has this Renaissance quality, and you have this figure sitting in front of these musical staves, and there's so many kind of objects inside. You have mandragora, which is this magical root, but then you have Einstein's formula, and then you have matte crystals, so all kind of objects, flowers are in there. And then in this fantastic room, you see spirits coming through the walls, trying to inspire or help her in the search. Then on the floor and the open drawers, you see geometrical objects and some instruments for measurement. But then you see birds coming out of the nest, coming out of a chair and books and alchemical apparatus Everything is in there. It's as if she's trying to put together science and magic and spirituality to think this is the only way we can really find the truth. We cannot just go into that way or the other. It's how can we find this intersection? And that was very innovative at the time with quantum physics. Now, these two realms that seem to be completely separate from each other and different, are now sort of mixing in a different way. But at her time, she was really, really avant-garde. Totally. I mean, this work, Harmony from 1956, I'll share it in the show notes for the audience. There's this sort of figure coming out of the wall as well, this ghost-like woman almost touching the objects as well. Yes. One of the very first books that she was reading about this subject was also of interest to artists such as Picasso and the Cubist, which was Peter Uspensky's Fourth Dimension study. And that book was an inspiration for many artists that were trying to think how can they represent a fourth dimension, something beyond what our eyes can perceive. And he believed it was painters who could achieve that through art. So this was a fundamental book. Oh my God, that's incredible. Just thinking about the power of this and what art can do, shifting the realm that we are in into another dimension and art almost reflecting the fourth dimension as this outlet of where it can go. But I'd love to go back to Remedios Varo's beginnings because she was born Maria de las Remedias Alicia Rodrigo Varo Iuranga in Angles, Spain in 1908. Tell us about her upbringing. Who were her parents? Well, she had a very interesting upbringing because from her mother's side and from her mother, it was a very conservative, Catholic, Spanish family. She was raised in non-schools, but she was very lucky because her father was of such an open spirit. He was an hydraulical engineer and he was building all these machines. For instance, he was building 
boats to navigate through different rivers. So they were moving from different towns. But he was an Esperantist. So he got together with this group where they were trying to find this language that could be a common language for the universe. And so he was very open in terms of understanding and studying all different kinds of ideologies and religions. He was also very much into geology. And so her love of crystals and stones began from childhood. He was the one that got her interested in science fiction, giving her the first books of Jules Burns. He is the one that taught her how to draw, and he was the promoter of her art. He really supported her, that it's not very common, especially with women, you know, to have this support from the family to really become artists. So he was a champion to her. And I'm I'm fascinated, you know, age eight in 1916. I mean, already she was kind of growing up in Anglers, this town with all this Gothic and Romanesque architecture, kind of archways, columns and medieval towers, which clearly went on to be influences in her later work. And then, like you said, she went to a nunnery school. And am I right to think she was a little rebellious as well? She was a little bit rebellious, not as much as her dear friend, Leonora Carrington, that <laughs> was expelled from the schools because of her resistance to, you know, obey and because she could write with both hands, mirror writing. Uh, sometimes they thought she was possessed. Remedios was not as rebellious as Carrington. And you can really understand because she never really ran away from home. She got married in a Catholic church mm. to be able to get away from home. <laughs> she wanted to explore different things. She didn't just run away like, let's say, Carrington did with Max Ernst. So that's how she got to go to Paris very, very young to see what was going on with all the avant-garde and everything that was happening in the art world was happening in Paris at the time. Totally. And so when she went to the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in San Fernando and Madrid, this is where both Picasso and Dali studied. I mean, she went as early as age 15. I mean, she must have showed such exceptional talent as a young girl. Well, yes, but unfortunately, a lot of the early work is lost. And then when we start really seeing some of her work is from 1935, when she's back in Spain, this time in Barcelona, and she gets together with this group that was named the Logico Fobistas, which means in Spanish is the ones that have a phobia for logic. Oh my gosh, amazing. <laughs> and they were completely against reason, especially they hated Courbet and some of the academic painters, and they really wanted to follow the surrealists. And with this group, she started doing this uh, collaborative work that a lot of us did as a child, where you fold a paper and somebody draws something and then you fold it again and somebody does the rest and then something comes out that it's completely the result of chance. So some of those works she started doing with this group. But we have very little of what she was doing before that. And there's some early works where she was experimenting with different techniques in Paris. And it was not until Mexico that she really, really develops her signature style that we know her for. 
So she's in Barcelona and Paris between 1930 and 1937, and she's eloped with her fellow student and political activist, Gerardo Lizarraga. I mean, thinking about what was happening politically in the 1930s, I mean, how did she escape to Paris or did she escape to Paris from the Spanish Civil War? Well, during the Civil War, she met Benjamin Perret, this French surrealist poet that she fell in love with. And she wanted to join him in France. He left Barcelona before she did. But then after the assassination of Garcia Lorca, she decided she had to go. And she flew to Spain and never went back. So she met Perret in Paris, and that's how she first got involved with André Breton and all the surrealists. And the work that she's making at this time, you know, while she's in Paris in the late 1930s, is really quite extraordinary. One of my favourite works of hers is Eyes on the Table from 1938, which is essentially this pair of glasses, which is opposite these eyeballs. It sort of almost looks quite St. Lucy-like, you know, the patron saint of eyesight, those kind of amazing Renaissance works. I mean, what was she kind of exploring in these 30s paintings? Was it spirituality? Well, as you can see, she was really exploring what the surrealists were interested in. You know, dreams, the subject of the eye, now that you mentioned this work, was so important for them, you know, because through the eye we see, when we close the eye, we see inside and we go into the world of dreams. And so all these ideas she was exploring, but she barely gave interviews in her life. The one she gave in the 50s in Mexico, she spoke about how she felt intimidated by the surrealist. She felt all these men with big intellectual ideas and she felt so shy sitting around them. You can see from other work, she was also experimenting with techniques. Like there's uh, one work that it's called Vegetal Puppets, and it's uh, made with wax using the shapes that you can get from the candle when it's uh, light. So they were experimenting in the cafes, putting the slit candles and the paper flowing all over to get all these shapes, and out of them they will start creating from their imagination. As how we do as children looking at the clouds and trying to imagine figures from the shapes. And she was trying different techniques. If you look at the early work, she was already looking at the self and the shadow, that it's something she will develop later on in some of her drawings. But she was doing a lot of collaborative work as well with all these different surreal games. So what then did happen, obviously, the outbreak of World War II in 1939? I mean, she made it to Mexico as a political refugee. I mean, how did she end up here? Well, actually, she ended up here because of Perret. She was traveling with him. As you know, many surrealists were very involved with communism. And he was denied the visa to go to the United States, where he wanted to go to join André Breton. A lot of the artists were helped by this group that was called the Emergency Rescue Committee. There was a group of Americans that were based in Marseille and with the help of MoMA in New York and people like Peggy Guggenheim, Elena Rubinstein, they were financing boat tickets to try to get artists and intellectuals out of Europe. And at the time, they were all staying in the Villa Herbel, trying to get 
passports, tickets, finding who will sponsor them. And after lots of uh, tries, they found the help of Frida Kahlo at the beginning. Actually, Remedios met Frida Kahlo in Paris when she exhibited and she asked her if she could try to help them to get to Mexico as well. So they were trying from many different sources. And with the help of friends in Mexico and with the sponsorship of Elena Rubinstein, who paid for the tickets, they were able to board uh, a ship called the Serpa Pinto. And they traveled first to Morocco and then they came to Mexico. And what sort of Mexico City did she end up in? Well, it was a post-revolutionary Mexico City. The city was getting really modern and was very open to exiles. There were many people coming from Spain, from the civil world, and also from other countries trying to escape the Second World War. So the atmosphere of intellectuals in Mexico, artists, writers, philosophers coming from abroad, added to all the Mexican artists that were still very strongly work on this idea of bringing art to the people that began with the muralist movement, although they were not very well received because the surrealists were not painting, they were completely against this ideology. So there was a very mixed relationship, but then when the exiles came here, it was really a separation. They were not as close as they were. So the surrealists became sort of a group of their own. And this was the likes of Leonora Carrington, Katie Horner and Remedius Varro. And I know that they were known collectively as the Three Witches. In a way, yes, yes. But there was, of course, others. Uh, Alice Rahon, she was also close to them. And she was also very interested in magic, except in a completely different way. She was much more into a shamanic, magical practice related to nature. When she arrived to Mexico, she spent many years basically doing commercial work to survive. She was the one paying for everything in the household. Peret couldn't get a job. He came to Mexico with her and they were surrounded by very poor immigrants. They were all exiled in Mexico. So she was doing a lot of commercial work at the time, decorating furniture, working for the pharmaceuticals producing all these brochures. But at the same time, she was beginning all her practices on consciousness and doing all these workshops. So it's really, once she meets Walter Gruen, he's in love with her and they become partners and he had the economic means. So he decided to take care of everything, pay the rent, pay all the materials so she could forget about commercial work and devote herself completely to painting. And that's when she started spending all these many hours in the studio doing these magnificent works. And I'm aware that Varro had this very eccentric personality as well. She would write letters to strangers and that their names picked from random from the phone book, inviting them to attend dinner parties and their endless experiments in cookery with surreal recipes served up to unsuspecting friends, including an omelette made with human hair and ink dyed tapioca pearls passed off as caviar. I mean, tell us about these eccentric dinner parties. Well, in a way, they, they also love to have a lot of fun. And people that knew Remedios, they always talked about her incredible sense of humor and Leonora Carrington as well. 
She had a probably darker, but also a very, very good sense of humor. So a lot of the things they did were just to have fun. The two of them together wrote a theater play, and it begins saying this is only for the entertainment of us, friends and the public. So many of these parties, these dinners, were part of having fun and, you know, trying to have a life in a foreign country where even though they were welcome as exiles, they were not as welcome within the art community because they were completely different in, in what they were doing. They were not trying to promote a political ideology as, you know, the muralists were doing. And so in the 50s, this is when she really starts to, you know, launch herself. I mean, first of all, Diego Rivera was quoted as calling Vara among the most important women artists in the world. And, you know, in 1956, she had a major solo exhibition in Mexico City and, you know, had this breakthrough exhibitions during this time. I mean, tell us about the subjects that she then began to explore in the 50s. The sort of subjects that Remedios was painting, you will see a lot of her paintings have one figure. So there's one figure that it's always in some sort of search. It could be metaphysical, scientific, but some of her characters are women alchemists, musicians, but in every painting you see there's a transformation going on. There's something magical happening. For instance, there's the flutist, where you see this musician that it's sort of mixed with nature. He's emerging from this rocky landscape with plants, and he has a mother of pearl on his face, which is a sign that he's illuminated. And with the vibration of his flute, you see how the stones are flying and trying to build this magical tower ascending towards the heavens. So this is the kind of painting she was doing, and they can be read from multiple levels. Some paintings have to do with her interest in music, in science fiction, in the esoteric. Another incredible painting, the juggler or, or the magician. This has such a mixture of uh, ideas. So you see how she has this character, the magician, whose face also has the mother of pearl, and it has the shape of a five-pointed star. It's a pentagram. So she's mixing magic, but also some of the ideas of Gurdjieff. He proposed this concept of the fourth way because he said there were basically three types of humans. The ones that are most focused on the physical aspect, the ones more focused on the emotions, and the ones more focused on the intellect. And he was proposing that the fourth way will be a unification of these three. So in a way, it was trying to find balance in a human being between the instinct, the physical way, the emotions and the, and the mind to try to find completeness or a more conscious approach to life. That's why he called it the fourth way. But then when you start really connecting with the universe, understanding that everything is connected, then it becomes a more magical being. It's number five. And that's why she uses the five-point star as well. 
But in this little chariot, you see the animals that represent the elements, the fire, but then you have magical plants, you have also alchemical apparatus. And inside, you see a woman that is asleep. And that was one of uh, Gurdjieff's main principles. He begins by saying that we are all asleep, even though we seem to be awake, our consciousness is asleep. And we really need to do a lot of work to wake up. Otherwise, we behave like the masses that we see in the group, that we are all alike with no really individual consciousness. But it's also very interesting because if you count the figures, they are 21. And then you have the magician, that's 22. So that's the number of the major arcana in the tarot as well. Being the magician, the number one card. So she's mixing traditions and ideas and putting them all together within one painting. But I just find this painting so extraordinary, the juggler. Please, people, look it up. It's this kind of medieval town. It's quite European, yet you have these kind of almost choir of angels. Yet there's something quite, I don't know, dark about what they're wearing as well. They should be these kind of angelic figures, but they're in this dark material. And then it's such a contrast from the magician who is lit up with this, again, with this mother of pearl. I mean, what is she trying to kind of convey? How does she kind of channel this spirituality into this painting? I think she's talking about the possibility of uh, awakening, of becoming a more evolved human being and sort of displaying all sort of resources, nature, alchemy, dreams, plants, everything is in there. Yeah. And one of my other favourite works from two years later, which I saw at the Peggy Guggenheim collection earlier this year, is Celestial Pablum, which is of a figure in this tower. Again, androgynous figure. It's in this tower, which is set against these clouds. And it's like this chimney, almost smoke being like stardust or something. And the main figure is grinding something and it's feeding this floating moon. I mean, tell us about this work, because I, I think what's so amazing and why she's still so relevant today is that these images are just like nothing else. And they're these other worlds that you kind of just feel completely transfixed by them and want to fall in love with them. It's interesting. This painting has been interpreted in the past as if it was maybe her longing to be a mother because she never was a mother. She never had a child. But actually, that was a decision. She decided she didn't want to have children. And of course, this painting is much more profound than that. And one of her books that was heavily marked is a book by Uspensky, In Search of the Miraculous. And it's a, a way to explain very clearly Gurdjieff's teachings, because Gurdjieff was very cryptic. And with this book, he tried to explain all his ideas. And in one of them, he's discussing how he's looking at the future in a way, because he was sort of thinking about global warming. He's talking about how at some point the earth is going to become a new sun and we humans in the earth have as a mission we have to literally fit the moon with the emotions so mm. the moon can generate organic life and it can be an inhabitable place in a way and she was really thinking about how we humans can do something for the planet. She had already this consciousness about how can we transform what is happening in the earth, how we can connect 
with the universe. Wow. I mean, yeah, this idea of alchemy, I mean, it just speaks so pertinently to the world that we're living in. But then there are other paintings, such as the creation of birds from 57, which is a sort of hybrid figure, sort of part human, part owl figure who is at its table painting, but also kind of dealing with these different bird-like creatures. I mean, it's almost difficult to describe because it's like a sort of magical laboratory or something. I mean, I'm fascinated by these works that are of these single figures, because also there, there is, seems to be this idea of not being trapped, but sort of being sort of locked up in this tower alone, this kind of isolation. What do you think that is in her work? Well, I think in many ways, this sort of uh, tower slabs, they have a completely different meaning that when we think about fairy tales and, you know, and, and a woman trapped in a tower. Mm. I think... In this case, it's a place of empowerment. It's like an alchemical lab. It's her place of creation. Like an artist studio. Of course. It's the studio, but it's also an alchemical lab. And it can also be like a, a kitchen, the domestic place that she's transforming. Because if you look in this specific painting you're talking about, at the very end, you have a coffee grinder next to the alchemical apparatus. So it's like a little note, a hint it might also be a kitchen, but the kitchen can be also an alchemical lab. So she's not really trapped there because she's connected with the outside and she's created with the energy of the stars coming and being transformed in these alchemical vessels. And she's giving life. Actually, she's discussing the act of a painting as creating and giving life to something. And what is uh, also really amazing about this painting, you see that she has this little instrument. It's not exactly a violin in her chest. And something that she was really into was the idea of vibrations and how everything in the universe is created by vibrations. And this is also scientific if we go way back to the Bing Bang, but also with the octaves and the music theory and how everything in nature follows the law of the octaves and how everything can be constructed or created through vibration. So we see that in different paintings, the idea of music and the vibration of music giving life as we see in creation of the birds. Amazing. I love this idea of feeding. It's feeding the world, making it a better place. And one also work, this triptych that I saw, this is kind of often seen as her most important work and most autobiographical. It's called Towards the Tower, Embroidering the Earth's Mantle and the Escape. And it's these three paintings from 1961 and 1962 of, first of all, these choir girls on this giant bicycle. And we meet them outside and then we meet them in a tower. They look like they're at school or something being read by a teacher. Again, in this tower up high. And then the last one is almost this idea of sort of being set free off into the universe. I mean, tell us about this triptych, because this is just extraordinary. Again, I mean, she's such a fantastic storyteller in her work as well. She is. And this work has a lot to do with her consciousness, feminist consciousness, ecological consciousness. We know that also because of her own writings. She talks about how in the first panel, the girls are led by this master and he has them mesmerized, all of them except one, you know, the one that is looking at us. And this has a lot to do with the idea of the teacher. And you see how in embroidering the earth mantle, it's women that are 
creating, they are conceiving a new earth. So she was really talking about a female-led spirituality, recovering this idea of the female as it was in the old matriarchal societies, which was also a subject she was exploring with Carrington, this idea of the women as the creators, the ones that are in charge of taking care of the planet, of nature, doing the rituals, keeping the spirituality within the community or the tribe. And the escape, it's sort of like this alchemical transformation and they're going towards a cave. It's like a new beginning. It's as if she's imagining the transformation of the world towards a new era. And it's led by women as well. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, what's really interesting, if you look at the last painting, the male and the female are fusing with each other. Oh, wow. Yes. I think she's more talking about a balance of the male and the female which is so contemporary. She was so ahead of her time. And that was a very Jungian concept, this balance of the masculine and the feminine within a human being, also the balance between the light and the shadow that we all have within. Wow, I love that. I mean, she was just so pioneering and speaks volumes to how popular she is today and how much she resonates with younger artists. But I mean, in 1963, Remedius Varo passed away at age just 54, at the height of her success. Upon her death, Andre Breton described her, I love this, as the sorceress who left too soon. She was so, so young. Uh, she died of a, a heart attack. And she left us with very, very little work because the technique, she used these super tiny paintings. It's just amazing when you get close to them. And it took her so long to finish one painting. So she was not as prolific as other artists and she lived very young. And as I mentioned, she spent many years really surviving doing commercial work. So really starts painting full-time from the beginning of the 50s. Wow. So really, it's just over a decade. Yes. It was a very, very brief career, but she left this amazing legacy. Totally. And I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, we've seen her work at Venice. I saw her work at the Surrealism Exhibition at Tate Modern this year and also at Peggy Guggenheim. I mean, this year I've seen more Amidius Varro paintings than ever. And it seems like she's just becoming more and more popular. I mean, what do you think it is about her work that is attracting people of today so much? Well, I think she resonates with a lot of the contemporary concerns. At her time, she was addressing all these subjects about magic, spirituality, female power, and the concern on ecology, this idea of androgynous and the fluidity of gender, all of that was not understood in her time. I mean, even though she was really famous, the very first exhibition she had in 1956, she sold everything within three days the first solo show. And from then on, there was a wait list. Every painting already had an owner. There was really, you know, nothing left. And because of the mystery of her work, even though it was not really understood at the time, but the subject matter, everything she's portraying there resonates so much today with younger generations, with the current concerns we have, even the global warming 
She was reading about science and about the displacement of the tectonic plates and the poles reversing and something that Carrington was writing about as well in her novels. So they were thinking about all of this way ahead of, you know, her time. So I think all their message is really being understood nowadays. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing, the sort of surge of interest. And what do you think she's taught you? What she's taught me? My goodness. <laughs> so many things. Actually, to really try to understand her painting, I really had to study everything she was studying herself. So I practically went to take tarot lessons, Kabbalah lessons, astrology lessons, reading Gurdjieff, getting to know people from the fourth way to try to understand. So she's made me look at life in a completely different way and also getting to know and understand her work. When I really started studying it at the beginning of the 2000s, I really felt I had to do something for this to be more known to others. And so that's why she's been part of my main focus, you know, the Surrealist women, to try to get her work to be in museums, in exhibitions, to try to promote writing about her. I think her message is really important and more relevant now than ever. Absolutely. Tara Ark, thank you so much for this very, very enlightening conversation. I'm just dying to find out more paintings and see them in the flesh, because I do think when you do witness them, it's this transfixing experience, really. I mean, it's just magical. And the more you look at them, the more you find and the kind of symbolism weaved within this is just extraordinary. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could say or ask Remedia Spara anything, what would it be? <laughs> That's an amazing question. Oh. <laughs> Probably will be that after everything she studied to try to understand how the universe works, what was her conclusion? Amazing. Tara Ark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. No, it's a pleasure, Cathy. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Terra Arc on Remedia Sparrow. I am absolutely in awe of Remedia Sparrow's life and urge you all to look up her incredible artwork and if you can, see it in the flesh because it is really quite an experience. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardis Manelic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. If you have been enjoying these episodes, please do rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.